welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Thank you. There's a mountain out to the west of Colorado Springs that's called Pikes Peak. And from the early days, they decided to put up a road, a gravel road to the top of this 14,000 foot peak so that cars could go up there on a weekend or whenever and enjoy the view out on the plains. And it was considered to be one of the most uh, supreme tests of a vehicle to make it up there because only the strongest could do it. There were many cars that broke down on the way up. Well, that peak is today still as steep as ever, and even though most of the road has been paved now, our modern SUVs just make it look like child's play going up to the top of that mountain, 14,000 feet. It's because they have these great big engines in them that they can go up so quickly. The point that I'm trying to make is that indeed there are difficulties in following Jesus, uh, loads of them, especially in light of the Apostle Paul's experience that he writes about, but God's love flattens out the difficulties, and much, it makes it much easier to be saved and more hard to be lost. And another name for this idea of God's love and the cross of Christ is much more abounding grace. The Lord desires us to enter into his experience of identification with his cross to comprehend his great love for us. That will flatten out the difficulties in our Christian experience. I know that there are folks within our church as well as outside of it who don't like the idea of agape love, this abounding grace, this constraint that Paul talks about that we read in our scripture lesson. They're uncomfortable with the idea of the free gift coming upon all men at a justification of life. They're also uncomfortable with the assurance that this much more abounding grace, this constraint of God's love, will indeed work a revival and reformation and repentance within God's denominated body. But I believe very firmly that the cross of Christ, firmly perceived and understood, will work a genuine revival and repentance and reformation in our midst. A great worldwide church is experiencing, it's being called, to a revival and reformation and seeking a preparation of heart for the end of the world and for the coming of Jesus. And sincere people are pressing their petitions to God's throne of grace. And it is increasingly being recognized that the last day developments are beginning to take place before our very eyes. Yes, it's time for those who cherish the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, it's time for us to awaken to the high privileges of being educated and learning uh, about God's love. It's impossible for a world church to pray for revival and reformation 
without heaven responding in some way. The insistent inroads of worldliness must be counteracted by an unprecedented infilling of the Holy Spirit and a standard being lifted against the enemy. The prophets and the apostles of ages long past have longed to see our day when a people would be ready to grow up into the fullness of Christ. That at last the new covenant which Jeremiah spoke of there in chapter 31, at long last that would come into its own and be fulfilled in the midst of God's people. When Joel prophesied about the latter rain being poured out of the Holy Spirit upon your young people as well as your old, Joel looked forward to that day, to our time, and when the earth would be lightened with glory as John the Revelator predicted it in Revelation 18, a message of righteousness by faith that would be led by the cross being uplifted, uh, the message of Christ in him crucified in clarity and power never before realized. Prophets and apostles of past ages wished that they could live in our time. Do we realize the, te- the intensity of the days in which we live and the potential for a rightly based revival and reformation to take place within the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And side by side with that will come the enemy's deceptively designed counterfeits of revival and reformation. So we need to walk softly before the Lord. And just now, so that we don't reject the ISAB, we need the ISAB of the Holy Spirit so that we can recognize the genuine revival and reformation as the devil is going to seek to inject the false, the counterfeit. Well, does God have a problem to solve? Does he? Are there any difficulties for God? As problems are for us. We look at problems that we have and we say, well, God couldn't possibly have any problems like we do. But God has one huge problem, and that is the rebellion of sin in his universe. And you may say, well, he is infinite, and he's all-powerful, and he can just zap his enemies, and all of his problems go away, and they're resolved. But just wait a minute. He can't do that unless he chooses to rule as a divine dictator. And in the process of ruling as a divine dictator, he becomes a Satan resurrected himself. For example, his people... Israel were being cruelly enslaved in Egypt. How can he deliver them? Is he going to zap the Egyptians? No. He must go through a long, wearying process of sending ten plagues upon Pharaoh and the people. He must carry world opinion with him. Most of all, God must make it clear to his own people, Israel, that he alone is their savior and their deliverer, or else their hearts will never be truly reconciled to him. And if they truly, if they retain any sense of self-salvation, then sin is still going to rise up in their hearts. Even 1% of salvation by their own works is going to just cancel out the power of his gospel as surely as 1% of arsenic mixed in a good dinner, will spoil it. But that one lethal percent 
or maybe more, got mixed up in at Mount Sinai when the people themselves wanted to invent their way to revival and reformation. They invented their covenant at Mount Sinai when they said, all that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. We will do. We helped you, God, deliver us from Egyptian slavery. Even if we didn't, we will do our part in this bargain, this deal, this transaction of your covenant. We will sign on the dotted line with you. You can count on us, Lord. And so all through Israel's long history, this old covenant mentality predominated. After each revival and reformation, until finally it drove them to reject and to crucify their Savior. Now, does God have a problem with his church? The prophecies of Daniel and Revelation and of Jesus in Matthew 24 and of Paul in Acts chapter 20 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, all of them say yes. Jesus has a problem with his church. The great enemy who misled ancient Israel is still active. Jesus said, take heed that no man deceive you. And after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And there shall come a falling away. And that man of sin be revealed who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, says Paul. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And again, the issue is self-righteousness. And those studious ones feel that they must worm in that principle of salvation by works in some way. They just can't have a Savior doing all of the saving. So I ask you, can you have a Savior who does all of the saving? Something significant is happening all across North America. All across the world, thousands of church members are pondering. What is the difference between the old covenant versus the new covenant? Is God asking us to sign our names to a covenant contract that contains a series of promises, maybe entitled, My Covenant with God, promising that I will study the Bible, and I will pray more, and I will share with others, and I will serve the Lord Jesus and prepare for his soon coming, which are all very good things to do. But could it be possible that God is asking us to believe his promises to us? He is not asking us to make promises to him. According to the Bible, The new covenant has always been God's one-sided promise to his people. And the old covenant has been the people's promise to God to do everything just right. The question that is stirring thousands of minds is this. What is the correct, what is the effective way to realize all of these four good things of studying the Bible What is the right motivation for prayer? What is the right motivation for witnessing and for sharing one's faith? What is the right motivation for preparing for Jesus' coming? Not just for a week or two, while the emotional adrenaline is prompting us to do it, but the right motivation forever and ever. Will the old covenant 
effect a lasting revival and reformation? Will it? History says no. The Scripture says no. King Hezekiah in Jerusalem led the nation of Israel in a powerful Old Covenant revival and reformation, doing everything just exactly right according to the law, according to the blueprint. Wonderful, but it all fell apart in the succeeding reign of his son Manasseh. And then Hezekiah's grandson, Josiah, came to the throne. And again, another Old Covenant revival and reformation. Wonderful, but it all fell apart with the death of King Josiah. And from then on, it was all downhill, all the way to national ruin. And the caveat, by God's grace and enabling power, doesn't change the nature of Old Covenant promises that we will do everything just right, which will produce All these promises will produce spiritual bondage, and it's still a faith and works experience instead of a faith which works by agape and the cross of Christ. What is the real problem? Well, an inspired one tells us what the real problem is. We can't keep our promises. We can't keep our promises. And when we break them, discouragement sets in and defeat. Ellen White puts it this way in that little book, Steps to Christ, on page 47. And we ought to heed these words. Your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. The knowledge of your broken promises and forfeited pledges weakens your confidence in your own sincerity and causes you to feel that God cannot accept you. Let's believe, let's dwell upon, let's cherish, let's remember God's promises to us in his new covenant. I will write my laws upon your heart and upon your mind. And then God's love never fails. Agape never fails. And as we are going to be continuing now, even deeper and deeper into this 21st century, the 2000s, the appeals to fear are heightening and intensifying. And it's true that natural and man-made disasters are becoming more and more frequent. Wickedness in high places is more publicized. And morality in general is being discredited. And the signs are unmistakable. Get ready. The end is near at hand. Yes, the signs are very clear. But can fear... And self-centered concern produce the revival and reformation that are needed. Shortly after World War I, a very wise church leader expressed his hope that the disasters in Europe would lead to a spiritual revival and reformation in the church in Europe. That it would fill the churches. And you know, sometimes when bad things happen, it does turn people back to church, but it doesn't last very long the fear motivation. Sadly, he confessed that after time passed, the revival and reformation did not happen as he had hoped. In fact, all through sacred history, we we read how fear has never produced lasting revivals and reformation. Well, what does work? The answer is the gospel. 
the cross of Christ, which brings the gift of repentance and obedience to the law because it's faith which works by love. Yes, the gospel. And the reason? The reason the gospel works is because it reaches human hearts and it motivates in a way that fear can never do. A wise writer said long ago that when Christ approaches, he walks on a path of velvet, lest his footsteps awaken fears, when only the message of his love can motivate truly. We are at present in a little tarrying time, when each of us is being tested to see how deep and thorough is our heart appreciation of that much more abounding grace of Christ. Nothing short of that will enable us to endure the tests and the trials that all of us know will surely come at the end. And so in this time of a great cosmic day of atonement, God's people must have a far clearer understanding of the gospel than any previous generation have ever been able to comprehend This does not mean that God has withheld from previous generations that clearer understanding of the gospel because God has never withheld it from anyone. But the truth is simply this, that no previous generation has ever been able to comprehend it. They were not prepared to comprehend it. I mean, you don't withhold from a flower girl at the wedding the privilege of being a bride, she's just not ready for it. But the time must come when she grows up. And Ephesians 4 says, tells us that the growing up process is speaking the truth in agape, turning aside from every false wind of doctrine. The good news is that the heavenly high priest, Jesus, is more than ready to shed abroad in our hearts that most precious gift of agape. And it is agape that will cast out all fear. What's the difference? What's the difference between a revival and reformation in the church that is old covenant in nature and one that is new covenant? Well, the great reformation under King Josiah in 2 Chronicles is a good example. It was Old Covenant. Why? Should we not be able to tell the difference today between an Old Covenant revival and Reformation and a New Covenant? Suppose the world church today experiences a grand revival and Reformation that is Old Covenant. Would that hasten the second coming or further delay his coming? What are the differences An Old Covenant Reformation is decidedly only temporary. And in the case of Josiah, the moment he was dead, his sons began leading the people right back to rebellion against the Lord and the people willingly, followed mindlessly, followed like sheep, going astray. No roots, no foundation, and from then on it was disaster all the way down to the total national ruin. They had not learned no lasting gospel truth under King Josiah. And that wasn't the poor man's fault. He had simply inherited the old covenant yoke 
which the nation of Israel had fastened upon themselves at Mount Sinai. I think it was the Apostle Paul who was probably the first Israelite to discern clearly the significance of their old covenant history as a people when he said in Galatians chapter 3 that the law was our schoolmaster, our slave driver, to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith, just as our father Abraham was justified by faith. And so numerous, numerous Old Covenant revivals and reformations have come and gone in the world. For the past 150 years, King Josiah all over again. And they have been inspired by and imported from the popular ecumenical movements, the Keswick movement, the victorious life movement of the 19th and 20th centuries and the popular revivalisms of in this century, and we will probably face a massive Old Covenant revival sweeping the churches in the 21st century. An Old Covenant revival and reformation is motivated by a desire to receive God's blessings. A New Covenant revival and reformation is motivated by a heart thankfulness and appreciation of God's blessings already received and appreciated and realized. An Old Covenant revival is therefore self-centered in nature, and whatever is self-centered in motivation has to be legalistic in its origin. In contrast, a New Covenant revival and reformation is based on an experience of identifying with Christ and his crucifixion that transcends the fear of being lost and the hope for a heavenly reward. The story of good King Hezekiah, mentioned earlier, he was the son of King Ahaz, a very bad king. For example, Ahaz was bad. He closed up Solomon's temple and he turned the people of God to obscene pagan worship. When he was 25, Hezekiah cleaned up the temple inside and out. He opened up its doors. He reinstituted the worship of the Lord of heaven. He even revived the joyous celebration of the Passover. And he did his level best to lead the confused descendants of Abraham back to strict obedience to God. And God honored him. Two of Hezekiah's desperate prayers were miraculously answered. One, Hezekiah prayed to turn away Sennacherib and the impending doom of the Assyrian army. And he saved Jerusalem from conquest and destruction. The other prayer Hezekiah prayed was for healing when he was 39 years of age and he had a fatal disease. And God told him clearly that his time had come to die. God said to him at 39, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. But God listened as Hezekiah turned his face to the wall, and he wept sorely and said, O Lord, remember all of the good things that I've done, and how I have walked before thee with a perfect heart 
and I have done that which is right in thy sight. You can read it there in Isaiah 38, 1 through 3. Hezekiah said to the Lord, it's not fair for me to die at 35. And there was more convulsed sweeping from him. And so God sent Isaiah to tell him, I've heard thy prayer, and I've seen thy tears, and you're going to have 15 more years, verse 5. And so, at 39, to Hezekiah, 15 years seemed like an eternity lying out there, and Hezekiah was just really happy with the answer to his prayer, and he thanked God publicly for this. But there was one problem, just one problem, that the king had been mistaken about that truth and his perfect heart that he talked about because he didn't know his heart. He didn't know what was buried way down unknown to him in his heart. It was an unknown sin. If he had humbly submitted to God and if he had died at the Lord's direction at 39 years of age, he would have exalted his Oval Office with a glorious place in ancient Israel's history. And his labors of revival and reformation could well have been successful and permanent. He could have sat with Abraham and Moses and David, for his reign would have saved the cause of God from ruin. But Hezekiah sang the song, I love life. I love life too exuberantly. And he was very overconfident in his perfect heart, his own righteousness. And his pride in the divine healing led to the eventual conquest of his kingdom by Babylon. And in those 15 extra years that God gave him, he sired the next king of Israel to sit on David's throne, and that was his son Manasseh, and he shed rivers of innocent blood. Jeremiah was later on forced to say that the unspeakable horror that overtook the kingdom and the throne and the people was because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Jeremiah 15, verse 4. You know, sometimes it's better to die than to live. Sometimes it's better to heed the instruction of the Lord than to live. And then you have King, good King Asa. The story of the kings. Here's another one. A good king described as having a perfect heart. And yet, how could he lose his temper and throw God's true prophet into jail? And how could he oppress God's people and end up rebelling against God in his old age? You know, that's kind of scary for anyone who thinks that he or she has a perfect heart. Who thinks he or she is okay. You can read about this story in 2 Chronicles 15 and 16. But the Bible marks, makes the problem very clear. There were two words for perfect heart and the Hebrew Bible translates them, and one was peace. And this is the one that King Asa said, I have a heart of peace. I'm perfectly at peace with what my heart tells me. 
But there is another word for perfect, and that's tamim. And that is a morally perfect heart continually. But Asa said, I'm perfectly at peace with my heart, the way I understand truth. Whereas God doesn't want us to understand truth according to our own heart. He wants us to understand it according to his word. Asa's perfect heart meant that he lived up to Israel's old covenant ideas right down to the letter, just as he had been taught it from history. A wise writer says, Ellen White says, that the old covenant, this is in Patriarchs and Prophets, the old covenant was obey and live. The new covenant is believe and live. Believe and live. How many more decades are we going to confuse these two covenants? How many more? It's a very perplexing mystery, and in fact, a discouraging suggestion. We read about another king in the story of the kings of the Old Testament. His name was Jehoshaphat, and apparently he understood and believed the new covenant truth of the gospel, and still he fell into a tragic sin. And further, his wonderful revival and reformation unraveled when he died. And under his son Jehoram, the king of Judah, returned to the Baal worship of King Ahab of the northern kingdom of Israel. How could wonderful King Jehoshaphat's good works fail so in the end? Well, here's the problem. In 2 Chronicles 17, 6, we read, that his heart was lifted up in the ways of the Lord, which is very commonly understood to mean that, well, he was euphoric in his heart devotion to the gospel. And this suggests that his obedience to God was not the self-centered compliance with God's rules and regulations, that is, old covenant legalism, but genuine heart love devotion. The discouraging thing is that apparently all this genuine heart love for the gospel is powerless to hold the good king from later sin and powerless to save the nation, national revival and reformation from collapsing, and it makes us wonder about ourselves. Something interesting, however, comes to light when we look at the Hebrew word for Jehoshaphat's lifting up of his heart. It says he lifted up his heart. And it's a word that means haughty, arrogant, puffed up, rather than lifted up in the good sense of the term. It is a term that's used in Ezekiel 28 to describe how Lucifer's heart was lifted up. And that's the genesis of sin. And in Proverbs 17, 19, it means arrogance, and in Obadiah chapter 4, it is haughtiness. And in Ezekiel 31, 14, it's exalting self. So the root problem of Jehoshaphat was being proud of his righteous devotion to the Lord. Sincere King Jehoshaphat was indeed a good man, but he didn't know that he was a Laodicean leader, proud of his righteousness. And like Hezekiah, unknown sin was buried in his heart. And if the story of God's people were a theater stage, 
Most of the plays would be tragedies. A fascinating one is King Josiah, inheriting bad DNA from Father Amnon and Grandfather Manasseh, both evil kings. He surprisingly turned out good. The big pastor of that day, Josiah, discovered the book of Moses tucked away in a cupboard in the temple. Can you imagine that? They lost their Bible. And then they found it in a cupboard. And Josiah was only 26, but he followed everything to the letter, everything that Moses had to say. He commanded everyone else to follow him in revival and reformation. And of course, the basic motivation was raw fear of disasters that God threatened if they didn't. And it was an old covenant revival, but nevertheless, the Lord blessed, for it was the best that the king and the people knew. They were happy celebrating Passover. It seemed that at last, after the horrors of Manasseh's reign, heaven had come down to earth and all went well until a new, unlikely, strange voice was heard, a message from the mouth of God. Yes, it was unmistakable credentials, but it wasn't through the mouthpiece of Josiah. And the people were ready to accept. No, they weren't ready to accept. The mouthpiece that the Lord used was the king of Egypt. Pharaoh had the inspired word. And so Josiah felt it was his militant duty to oppose that message of God through Pharaoh. Sad, he buckled on, Josiah buckled on his armor. He went forth to prove that this latest message from God, from Pharaoh, was a fraud. Pharaoh Necho had warned him not to meddle with God, that he destroy thee not, but in spite of all of the good deeds that Josiah had done. And although he disguised himself in battle, he died in that war. And the young prophet Jeremiah composed a very heart-moving requiem for him. We wish we had it. So not learning the lesson of Josiah, the church leaders in modern times with records of good deeds have also rejected God's God messages God has sent them from unlikely sources and have undone the good that they had done. And resting on laurels of God's past blessings, they have opposed much precious, fresh blessings from the Lord in great mercy sent. Can we learn our lesson? There are good, sincere people who believe in old covenant principles of revival and reformation in God's church. They are the reformations of the kings of Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and Josiah, not stopping to realize that all of these reformations failed. God's true church, the church of Old Testament times, the church of these good kings, immersed as it was in the old covenant, all of them ended up crucifying Christ in the end. In truth, there was and there is nothing good about the Old Covenant. 
It was bad news all the way, and it still is, because its children are born into slavery, and it produces slaves as offspring. It gendereth to bondage, Paul says in Galatians 4.24. It is directly responsible for the numerous backslidings that occur in the church and the loss of youth and the spiritual confusion that produces Laodicea's wretched lukewarmness. When children are dragged through the old covenant with legalism-laden stories and so-called Bible lessons, many drop out. When finally they are free from home and church control and mothers weep their eyes out, not knowing what's wrong. And often it's not their fault. They did their best to toe the mark of legalism teaching because that's what they were told in the church. Can anyone this side of the final judgment assess the enormities of these tragedies? And all of this, while the dear Lord tries repeatedly to lead his people into the glorious liberty of the new covenant. It was always his his intention that his people be a kingdom of priests through whom every family on earth should be blessed. The new covenant is God's promise to Abraham and his descendants by faith, of course, that his people be the greatest nation on earth. No need for any lessons to be learned from Assyria or Babylon. That new covenant promise applies to every little church that will respond and believe as Abraham did. It also applies to every individual who will believe as it did Abraham. And best of all, you will not only receive a blessing, but you will be a blessing to others too. Jesus is uplifting the cross before us now, and he's inviting us to enter into, identify with his crucifixion. Could you not wait with me for one hour? He said to the disciples when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane. Ever wonder why Jesus said that with them? He was inviting them to enter into his heart. The experience that he was facing and was going to go through for them of bearing the curse of their wages of sin. And had they entered into that experience with him, they would have been prepared for the crucifixion. But they were sleepy and drowsy and valued their sleep more than entering into and identifying with Christ in his cross. Now, dear friends, we are living in the time of Gethsemane now. And he is inviting us. Won't you spend an hour with me, watch with me one hour, and identify with my crucifixion and what I'm seeking to teach from the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, what I went through On your behalf, you know, to bear the cross, the curse, as he did for each one of us, means that he he chose to be eternally forsaken by his Father so that you would never have to go through that. We had a powerful Sabbath school lesson this morning, amen? On fear. Wonderful lesson for our time. When I was a young man, I used to be afraid every day I woke up. 
I was born into a Seventh-day Adventist home. Every day I was afraid. I didn't know why I was afraid. And I had this recurring nightmare that I'd be found out public, out in the public, naked, without any clothes on. A horrible nightmare. I had fears in abundance. Anybody here ever have a fear? And those of you who didn't raise your hand are from Mars. <laughs> Do you know why we have all of these little fears in life? The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, the reason we have these little fears in life is because there is an ultimate fear that the devil uses as a power tool, and that is the fear of annihilation and death. And all of these little fears are just precursor tremors up to the big one. But Jesus has the answer to our fear of death. And he vanquishes the devil because he experienced, if one died for all, then we're all what? Jesus tasted death for who? Every man. The ultimate diminution, the ultimate diss on your life is the thought that once you're dead, that's it. You'll never come back from a resurrection. That's the ultimate diminishment of self-respect, isn't it? And Jesus faced that Temptation. Do you think Jesus was afraid of the cross? That was a powerful temptation for him. But Jesus never yielded to the fear of dying an eternal death on the cross for you and for me. He never yielded to it. Perfect love faced the ultimate test and was a victor through agape for his Father and for you and for me. And dear friends, the perfect love casts out all fear from your soul, too, and mine. Through identification with Christ, that means to appreciate, to see what it cost him to pay your wages of sin. And not just a, a glimpse, but a continual day-by-day -day appreciation of his cross. So that perfect love casts out all fear. I had a beautiful lesson today in Sabbath school. By the way, I invite you to come to Sabbath school next week. Wonderful lessons on emotions. We have a heavenly high priest who wants to heal us emotionally, and we're all mentally ill, and we need that healing. May you be healed by the gift of the cross this morning. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming. <laughs>